<clears throat> Good to see everyone. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at First Calling Christian Church. We're glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. If you would, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, that's okay. There are some black hardbacks underneath the seats around you. You're more than welcome uh, to grab one of those and flip open or just bust out the iPhone. All right, Hebrews 2. It's probably the fast way to get there. We have started a series last week on Easter Sunday called Insurrection. Uh, and what a spelling mistake, okay? Insurrection is kind of this uprising, okay, this revolt against the powers that be. And, and what we said last week was that Easter, the, the act of Jesus rising from the dead, was this act of insurrection. It was this act of rebellion against the powers that put Jesus to death. Um, and, and we looked and, and we went through back through the Gospels because one of the things I think we've done sometimes is we've isolated Jesus' death and resurrection from his life. And we have a hard time understanding why exactly he died and why exactly he resurrected. But when you go back and you look at Jesus' life, you see that he, he was starting this movement called the kingdom of God. He, he was starting this um, kind of rebellion against the demonic powers that had seemed to like come in and possess creation. So everywhere Jesus went, he would say, hey, the kingdom of God is showing up, and he'd cast out demons. And, and people who were sick, he'd heal them. And, and sometimes people who were dead, he'd raise them. And people who, who were in sin, he would forgive them. And he would say, hey, pray like this. Let's pray that God's will be done here, right now, as it is in heaven. Jesus' his mission, his movement, was all about bringing heaven to earth. Okay? It was the kingdom of God arriving on earth in power. And he gathered a group of disciples around. We saw this again last week as well. Uh, he gave his 72 disciples the same power to go heal people, and to go rise, raise people from the dead, and to go um, cast out demons and forgive sins. And, and he told them to go explain it by, by saying... When you heal somebody, tell them the kingdom of God just came near to you. Something's happening in the world. Something's happening in history. Jesus shows up, and there's almost this battle being fought um, between the way the world is and the way the world, um, the, the way that God wants the world to be, and that he's now establishing through Jesus. And so he said the resurrection, um, all this evil that Jesus has been fighting against throughout his life, finally colludes and puts him to death. But then he comes back alive. And he's still alive today. He's, he's like on the loose, right? He's slippery. He can't keep him down. I mean, this is, he's, that was the meaning of Easter. He's alive. As alive as he ever was right now. And his movement is still going on. It's still going on. Acts starts with, um, after Jesus' resurrection, the things that Jesus still continued to do and to teach. He's alive. The movement is on. Um, and so over this four-week series, we're exploring what it means to say that Jesus' resurrection is an act of insurrection. And that as Christians, you and I are invited to join the insurrection, to join the rebellion against the world, to join the rebellion against the powers that be, that enslave creation into these dark uh, and oppressive ways. Um, the kind of tagline we have for our series is, Easter should make rebels of us all. This is a quote from David Hart. Um, Easter should make rebels of us all. If we really understand what happened in the resurrection, um, it would create these kind of radical people who go out and, and absolutely transform the world for Christ uh, and for his kingdom's sake. Um, so, we'll be in Hebrews 2. Um, I, I read a quote this week that I thought captured last week's sermon, so I want to read it to you this morning before we move on. Um, the quote goes like this. Christ's resurrection was a weapon. Was a weapon. That's not usually a metaphor I think we think of with his resurrection. It was a weapon. It was not vindication for a life wrongly terminated. It is reinstigation for a battle rightly fought. <coughs> There's this conflict taking place. One side of the conflict thinks they've taken out the leader, but he's back again. The fight is still on. The mission is still going. 
It is the shot that reignites a fiery engagement between forces claiming lordship over creation. Jesus shows up and he says, God is reclaiming this world for himself. And things are going to start to, to run the way that he intends them to run. The kingdom of God is showing up. It's not about a man as much as it is about a war. The kingdom of God, this, this resurrection act of Jesus is a weapon. And, and what I wanted to look at this, uh, today is, is look at how the weapon works, okay, of resurrection. I want to unpack the logic behind resurrection. Why is it that Jesus' resurrection is such a transformative action, um, both for the world and then for those who would follow him? And I think Hebrews 2 is going to help us out a lot in answering that question. Um, so we'll do some more foundation work this week, and then the next two weeks ending the series, we'll apply it. We'll, we'll look at what does the resurrection life mean personally, and then week four, what does the resurrection life look like corporately as a, a body. Um, Hebrews 2, um, how does resurrection work? What's the, what's the mechanism that the weapon frees God's people, okay? Um, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14, if you'll read with me. The scriptures say, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood, that's you and I. He himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things. So Jesus was incarnate. He became a human being. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, I think these two verses hold a whole lot of importance and a whole lot of truths for us to unpack as we consider the implications of the resurrection. Um, a couple things that you could pull out of these two verses. Okay? The first one is, is the author of the, the scripture seems to be making a claim that you and I, okay, humanity, are in some form of enslavement. And, and part of the work of Christ was to free us from that, was to destroy someone who had enslaved us, a tyrant who was over us. Jesus is the champion who comes and frees his people who were in slavery. And he says we're in slavery to what? To death. And more particularly, to the fear of death. Which is a very interesting way to put the predicament that you and I all find ourselves in. In fact, I would think if, if, if we were just being honest and talking, most of us would say on a daily basis, we're not that afraid of death. right? And this is not like a macho thing, like I'm a man, I'm not afraid of anything. <coughs> just like I don't spend most of my day concerned with dying. Right, And so I don't feel like it's too big of an issue for me, too much uh, of an issue being enslaved, being freed from it. I'm thankful, I guess, that I'm freed from it, but I don't know why. I wanted this morning, though, um, press on you and suggest that maybe you're enslaved by death more than you realize. And maybe the work of resurrection is this weapon, this moment that frees God's people from being afraid of death. And that allows them to go and join him on his movement. Um, in our culture right now, there's a lot of apocalyptic um, kind of stories getting popular for the last four or five years. Vampires are hot, okay? Zombies, um, monster movies in, in film and on TV and in print. Um, superheroes have been really big for the past few years. Um, our culture likes seeing, likes telling these stories, right? These apocalyptic stories, these stories of these cosmic forces in conflict. Um, and I think we can find good examples for what the scriptures are portraying through some of these stories. One of my favorite uh, of all the zombie, um, all the zombie stories is a, a TV show on AMC called The Walking Dead. Anyone familiar? Walking Dead? Okay. It's God's gift to mankind. 
Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, um, it's a little gory, so that's a warning if you go watch it. If you watch it and it seems inappropriate, I don't actually watch it. A sinner told me about it. Okay. Jason's our board chair. All complaints get emailed to him. J-A-S-O-N at MC3. Um, so, I mean, if you're familiar with one zombie story, you're kind of familiar with them all, right? A zombie is a dead person who comes back to life. They're not really back alive like 100%, so they're like the undead, right? They're like the living dead or the walking dead. And they come and they kind of start to take over, destroy civilization. They come and turn themselves against the humanity that is remaining. And the story of the walking dead is this uh, kind of tale of a group of survivors trying to make their way in this zombie apocalypse, okay? Um, and it's interesting. I was reading this week about the way that, that our culture portrays these apocalyptic scenarios, and, and I, I saw an interesting interpretation of The Walking Dead that makes sense if you watch it. Um, what you'll find if you watch this, the show is that the real threat to the remaining humans is not actually the zombies. The biggest threat is other people and themselves. And it's kind of a critique of human depravity, like how low humans will go to turn on each other and to survive. Um, and, and even more so, it's kind of this ironic critique of our pride. Uh, so think of this, right? I mean, we're, we think of ourselves as a pretty evolved, pretty intelligent group of species, right? I mean, we're kind of the deal in the universe, mm -hmm. right? There's, we've not met or matched yet. Um, but in these stories, it's not superheroes who are defeating us or aliens who are defeating us, right? I mean, it's these, like, they stumble over each other. They can't talk. They have no communication or organization. But we can't even stop them because we can't even get along with each other. And this is what you see on and on throughout the movie. Um, I think what Hebrews is saying is, in one sense, all of creation is, could be titled, could be called the living dead or the walking dead. Um, you and I are alive but kind of. We're alive, and yet we're still enslaved to this thing called death. And we're alive, yet a lot of times it looks like people are more just breathing and moving than actually living. It looks like they're controlled or they're possessed. It looks like they're enslaved. He says they're um, in slavery to death. I wonder if that's true of us. Um, psychologists would say there's two kinds of death anxiety. Okay? You have basic anxiety, and then you have neurotic anxiety. Basic anxiety is like your physical anxiety for well-being, self-preservation. So think of like the Lord of the Flies scenario, okay? All of us are all of a sudden on an island. Resources get, get, get limited, all right? What's going to happen? Probably we're going to turn on each other, right? Because we're going to be scared of dying, and that <coughs> fear of death is going to result in violence, okay? I'll lead a group, we'll conquer the other group, and we'll survive, all right? We'll, we'll be good to go. That's basic anxiety. Some people in the world experience basic anxiety, not you and I, like I said. On the average day, I'm not too concerned about starving. I'm not too concerned about being stabbed. Sometimes my students get a little out of control. Okay, but I've, I've rehearsed that in my mind so many times that I'm ready for it. But then there's this other type of anxiety called neurotic anxiety, and this is for people who don't experience this kind of basic anxiety. And the, the theory here in psychology is that you and I are still affected by our fear of death, even if we don't realize it. We've pushed it down to the subconscious. Um, and, and in fact, a lot of philosophers and psychologists have noticed how hard we've tried to ignore death in our culture. Um, we live in, in what one author writes, the time, the age of the denial of death. Um, we've pushed death as far away as possible. Um, so in the past, you would have 
Um, before kind of the industrial revolution and fast food chains and all these things, if you wanted chicken for dinner, you would have had to go and kill a chicken for dinner, right? Now if you get a chicken nugget, you get to avoid that whole awful messy process, right? We're all kind of thankful for it, but we've pushed that kind of as far away as possible. We don't want to know what happened to them before they end up on our plate, right? We just want it medium rare. Um, used to be also, back in the day, before hospitals and funeral services, most people died in their houses. When you were a kid, you, you probably would have seen someone die. You probably would have helped take care of someone who was dying. You might have dug someone a grave. I mean, it, it happened locally. There's nowhere you took that person, right? It happened within your home. Um, in fact, uh, when hospitals became big and you were able to take dying people away, out of sight, out of mind, um, there was no need for that room to put the dying person in. So they, they had to think of a phrase to call it. And they decided on the living room. Have you ever wondered where that comes from, that phrase, that etymology? It comes from the transition from when people died in their houses to when they died in the hospitals. You had this room reserved for people who were dying. All of a sudden, now it's, it's the living room. This is where people, it's morbid, I know, but this is the world, right? This is what we, this is the transition we've gone through. Um, you've got uh, cemeteries, I'm told, used to be by schools and by churches outside someone's home. I mean, you pass by it every day. We've pushed all of that away. We've got the rise of modern medicine. Okay, we live under the day-to-day illusion that we're immortal. And we all kind of pretend that somehow we're going to make it out of here alive. Which is why we're so beat up when somebody dies around us. If you watch other cultures that deal with death on a more regular basis, it's not as hard for them when somebody dies. I mean, there's still a grieving process, right? But they've learned how to cope with it. They've learned how to move on. It doesn't surprise them. What I've found, even in my own family... That when death comes, it's a surprise. It's like over 60 years of life, no one ever had thought about what might happen if this person stopped living anymore. But this is the world that, that, that we're all in. So how, how exactly does our fear of death, for you and I who don't face actual physical death, work out um, on a daily basis? I, I would give you a couple examples, maybe, of how this works out. The, the, the logic behind it, right? You're afraid of death, and so people can catalyze that fear into making you do something into making you be selfish. Your self-preservation kicks in. You turn on other people, okay? Um, I would say consumerism is a, an act of death avoidance, okay? Um, one of the reasons, I think, people spend so much money on so much stuff that they can't possibly even use by themselves is because they, deep down, know a time's coming when they can't spend that money anymore. They can't play with those toys anymore. So when they see it, they buy it. And they want more, and they want more, and they want more. Because that short, fleeting sense of it's never-ending, I get more and more and more of it, pushes back that sense of one day I'm ending. One day this is all going to be gone. And so we spend and we gain. We spend and we gain and we spend and we gain. Um, you see this, I think, in people managing appearances, right? I mean, plastic surgeries. People, there's this thing that, that some philosophers call the Peter Pan syndrome, um, where adults now are embarrassed to look like adults. So they make sure their faces don't have wrinkles, Right? They, they go, you have this like very expensive operation so that no one would imagine that they're dying, right? That they're old. Whereas in past cultures, right, it was, if you had gray hair, that was a sign of respect, right? You had a higher status. You lived your life, um, those kind of things. Um, there's, there's all these different ways that, that our, our, our death, um, our fear of death kind of control and enslave us. And what happens is if something confronts us with the fact that we, we perhaps are dying, um, 
we push back against it. And we try to avoid it, and we turn on it if we need to. Um, so each culture has a hero system, right? A system of like values, uh, values and goals. Uh, this is kind of what success looks like in this system. Um, and if someone gets in your way of that success, right, what happens? They become the enemy. You demonize them. Why? Because you have this feeling that you've got to attain this. This is your one shot at this. If you miss out on it now, you miss out on it forever. Um, as a teacher, I experienced this um, with parents. So every parent has <coughs> dreams for their child. Um, sometimes dreams that come to die in freshman Bible. <laughs> so dreams of the American kind, the American dream. My kid's going to go to Harvard. Okay, He's going to get this great job. He's going to make all this money. He's going to be able to take care of me when I retire. And then their kid gets a C in high school. And that entire dream has just been shattered. And the anger that you can understand that would result out of seeing that taken away from you and your child has to be turned on somebody. And with multiple teachers in the room, we can all attest, right? That verbal violence gets turned on us. You are the one who made that test. You are the one who gave the grade. You are the one who's single-handedly taking this life away from my kid and from my family. Um, it makes people turn on each other. Uh, it makes people be violent physically or even verbally. Um, but Hebrews says what's happened is to you and I who have been enslaved by death, afraid of it, even when we're not aware that we're afraid of it, something's happened. Death has been defeated. It's been publicly triumphed over, as Colossians said. It's been embarrassed in front of everybody. It, the emperor no longer has clothes on, right? We, we've just kind of lost its power. And there's this truth from Hebrews um, that whatever else a Christian, being a Christian might mean, it, it has to mean that, that, that it's a person who's no longer afraid of death. Does that make sense? I mean, whatever you would mean by being a Christian, whatever that phrase or word would mean to you, I think in the scriptures it's meaningless if it, if it doesn't contain this idea that, that death is just no longer as scary as it used to look. You're just not quite as afraid of it as you once were. It's just no longer able to manipulate and motivate you to do certain things that you used to be able to. It's, it's kind of lost its legs. You've seen it defeated. You've seen it kind of embarrassed in front of you. And any faith, I think, that, that would, would not contain this element of, of freedom from the fear of death, I think would not be a faith worth calling Christian or worth calling something that we would want to maintain and something that we would want to keep up with. I mean, death is the, the kind of final enemy in the scriptures, okay? God created all things. Death comes in and destroys it. It undoes the work of God. I mean, it is the ultimate enemy, in the scriptures. We'll look at a passage that calls it the last enemy. And on the cross, through the resurrection, in front of the whole world, it's been defeated. It's lost all of its power. And what the scriptures say is what that creates is a group of people, followers of Christ, who can't be controlled by it anymore. You see, death is this, it's very useful to control people. Um, any tyrant, right? That's their last and greatest weapon. If you don't want to do what I'll, I, I'm having you do, right? I'll harass you. I'll take yourself away from you. I'll put you in prison. And then when it gets down to it, do it or I'll kill you. And at that point, most people go, there's nothing worth being killed for. 
right? I'll do whatever the evil, heinous act there is. But what if there are a group of people who said, I'm not actually that afraid of death. You threatening to kill me can't make me do anything. It means nothing to me. Because Christ is risen. Look in uh, Revelation chapter 1. If you have your scriptures, flip with me to Revelation chapter 1. I want to look at a description of Christ as he appears to John after the resurrection. This is then, I think, the way that resurrection works. The way that it frees God's people and starts this movement is it creates a group of people who aren't afraid of death anymore. Who in the power of death, who the fear of death has lost its hold over. Who could, who could care less. Uh, who, who have no respect for death anymore. And thus they become rebels. Thus there's no one who can tell them what to do except their Lord who's defeated whatever evil, unjust, oppressive tyrant there might be. Um, Revelation 1, we'll pick up in verse 17. When I saw him, that is Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, or hell. What an epic kind of description of Christ here. He shows up to John, and John falls down like he's dead. And he's like, get up, don't be cry, baby, okay? Remember me? We're buddies, all right? I, I died, but I'm alive again. Not only am I alive, but I've got some spoils. I've won something for us. And he dangles this chain in front of John. John goes, what, what, are, what are the keys on that chain? He goes, these are the keys of death. These are the keys to hell itself. It's mine. I own it. There's this picture in the Eastern Orthodox Church of the Resurrection, and it's Jesus breaking out of hell. Um, and so you've got the gates of hell being burst open, um, and he's got Adam in one hand and Eve in the other, and he's rising up out of it. And he's starting this rebellion. And he's saying, not even death now will hold my people back. In Jesus' resurrection, we see death defeated. And more than that, we see a future promise for our own deaths to be defeated. Um, so I'm very passionate about this. Uh, the scriptures are clear. There's no two ways about it. The scriptures are clear from beginning to end that the hope for Christians, the eternal hope for Christians, is that one day they will be resurrected like Jesus was resurrected. What's happened is, in our culture, we've turned that hope into this vague hope that we'll just live in heaven um, for all of eternity. Um, and in the scriptures, there's passage after passage after passage that talk about all of God's people being resurrected from the dead, just like Christ was. Bodily resurrection. In fact, all of creation will be resurrected. New heaven and new earth. And I don't think you get where you need to go without that robust view of the resurrection. Um, Another way we say this is I think if your only hope is heaven, if your only hope is heaven, um, you're going to have a hard time following Christ now. Because death will still have a little bit of a hold on you. Let's work it out. What you find in communities where the, the, the Christian hope is going to heaven after you die is that by and large what most people do is they find the lowest common denominator. What's the least they need to do to get into heaven? Not of hell. They get it, do it, and then have as much fun as they can. Have you ever seen that in action, in work? Yeah. So whatever, whatever box I need to check, okay, whatever pastor I'm listening to, whatever church I'm in, whatever denomination it is, least common denominator, get it, and then I'm going to toe the line. Enjoy the world kind of as much as I can. 
um, because they're afraid that they're going to miss out on something in the world. And occasionally you get these weird spiritual people, right, who become missionaries and sell everything they have. There's that demon bird. <laughs> Speaking of horror movies. He's going to need to be resurrected in a minute. <laughs> Your move, bird. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. All right. <laughs> so what are we talking about? Resurrection. <laughs> yeah, resurrection. Get out of a free card there. So, so you'll you'll do what you need to do, and then you'll you'll toe the line, right? You'll enjoy the world as much as you you possibly can. Why? Because the world's a good thing. Now, I think that instinct is correct. God creates the world, and He goes Himself. This is pretty cool. There's a lot of fun things you can do in the world. There's a lot of fun places to go, a lot of fun things to experience. And it, to me, only makes sense, right? Sacrifice as little as possible so that you can assure your afterlife and then go bananas. That's what I think most of our Christian culture has, has kind of done. Um, so I can remember distinctly being an eight-year-old and thinking about Jesus' return and thinking that I am glad that one day he'll return, but I hope it's not too soon, because there's a lot of things I want to do in the world. In the world, I want to kiss a girl. <laughs> Eight-year-old is a pretty big goal of mine. I want to learn how to drive a car. I want to play in the NBA. I accomplished at least two of those three. I can guarantee you. And if Jesus comes back, I'm going to miss out. Right? I'm going to miss out on all of that. That's no fun. Other people get to experience those kind of things. Yeah, I want heaven. I want to be saved, and I want him to come back. But just let me get through my turn, right? Experiencing all these good things here on earth. But for people who believe they will one day be resurrected, watch the transformation that happens, right? They don't think they're missing out on anything. There's not one experience that they sacrifice now that they will not be able to enjoy fully for all of eternity. Not one place that they want to go or one thing that they want to do. And what this does is it frees them up to obey radically. And I don't think you can obey Christ without this robust belief in the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because Christ is going to come and say, give your money away to the poor. And you're going to say, well, how much? Because there's a lot of things I really want to buy here. So do as much as I need to. And then I'm going to enjoy this. <coughs> Someone with the resurrection might go, maybe I'll give it all away. I'm not afraid of losing the world, right? I'm not afraid of dying. I'm going to be resurrected. Death's been defeated. I'm now free to live generously, to open up my hands. I think this is the only way you get true, radical Christian obedience. I think that's the only way you get lives where people go, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense why you would live that way. Why are you spending your money that way? Why are you using your time that way? Why are you thinking about your career this way? Well, because I'm not trapped in this one life here on this world, trying to enjoy as much as I can while I've got it. If other people are hurting or suffering, I'll go serve them. I'll go love them. Instead of vacationing for the time I have here, I'm going to engage in warfare. I'm going to join the side of Christ. You've got these two worlds that collide, and with the resurrection, all of us are called to make a choice. Which side are you going to be on? Which side of history are you going to be on? The side of resurrection or the side of death? 
Ironically, the side of resurrection involves self-denial. Christ says you die and you gain your life, right? It looks to a lot of people like we're dying right now, giving away our stuff, not enjoying the life that we could be enjoying, not being as selfish as we could be. But in fact, the, the logic behind this is because, hey, we're going we're gonna to be back here. So right now, I'm going to lean into the war. Right now, I'm going to join Christ and go to the darkest places in the world, the most dangerous places in the world, give my resources and time away freely, and obey him as much as I can. Because there's nothing that I'm afraid of. I'm not afraid that if I don't buy that trinket, I'll never be able to enjoy that. And I'm not afraid that if I go do this ministry, I might get killed and then not get married and have kids. None of my decisions now are factored in by this death fear. And this is how you get these people who live radical, radical lives. I mean, think about how dangerous a person is who's not afraid of dying. You can't stop them from doing anything. I mean, this is the last weapon. Um, people who are not afraid of death are very dangerous. I'm thinking of, you know what? This, this is really impressive that I got that bird to go away. All right? I just cannot get off my mind. <laughs> Out of seven years of preaching every Sunday. <laughs> it's just a battle that was won. Some control. All right. What was I talking about? I don't know. <laughs> the worst sermon ever. Uh, that was a bird, though. Before that. Yeah, so people who aren't afraid of death are kind of scary, right? Uh, I'm thinking of, thinking of those, the people who go into uh, a mall or a school or a movie theater uh, in hopes of, of causing this mass destruction, right? Something has horribly gone wrong in their minds and their hearts. Um, you, you don't stop them, right, by flashing a pistol at them outside because it's a suicide mission. They're not afraid of death. Or think of religious terrorists, suicide bombers, right, who aren't afraid of death. I mean, think about how scary that is. What can you do to deter them? They're just going to come and, and, and blow it all up. And while I was talking about this one day in class, one of my students um, years ago said, so, so are you saying that Christians are like suicide bombers? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, but then no, no. I was like, well, how about we say it like this? Christians are like suicide bombers, but with love. There's nowhere in the world, and there's nothing in the world that's going to stop us from taking the love of Christ, taking the light of Christ. And if there's hungry people, we're going to feed them. It doesn't matter if we're going to have to give away a little bit more of our money than other people usually have. We're going to feed them. If there's people um, starving, we're going to give them food. And if there's people naked, we're going to clothe them. And if, if there's a dangerous situation and you might want to take yourself or your family there, we're still going to go. Because we're not afraid of dying. There's nothing that will influence us away from living our lives like Christ, spreading his love Everywhere. This is, I think, how the weapon of resurrection happens. Death invades God's good world. God, I think, invades it again with Christ and detonates the resurrection. Death's defeated. The kingdom explodes. You see people in the gospel, in the, the, the apostle, um, the epistle of Acts, right? They're just unsufferable. Paul, what do you do with him? 
If he's free, he talks about Jesus converts people. You put him in prison, he talks about Jesus converts people. You beat him, he sings because he's happy being beaten for Jesus. You kill him, he's like, great, I'll go be with Jesus. There's nothing you can, I mean, there's no way you stop these people. There's, there's, no, there's no limit to what they're going to go do, how they're going to go transform the world. <clears throat> Christians become these, these, these radical people who follow Christ um, wherever uh, he might call them. I think perhaps we should think of salvation less of a rescue and more of an invasion. I think this might actually help us with the language you find in scripture. In a rescue, usually what you do is you can find the person who's in danger, and you get them, and you take them away. You retreat into a safe zone. In an invasion, though, that's, that's not the goal. You're coming, and you're meeting and engaging and putting down all enemies you find and retaking claim over that space. That's how you make that person safe. This is, I think, what you see God do in Christ. He comes, he says, this is my world, and it's going to run the way I want it to run. And so we're going to start this little thing called the kingdom of God. And when you see people are sick, you're going to heal them. When you see people in sin, you're going to forgive them. And when people are dead, I'm going to raise them. And then the powers that be weren't happy with this invasion. And when they tried to take Christ out, they played into his hand, and he resurrected. And then it was like all hell broke loose on earth. Because now no one was afraid of death anymore. The one thing they had. And Christ's followers go out in power. And people look at them and go, what can make them act that way? And why would they be that generous with their money? Why would they be that silly with their time? Why would they, they be so irresponsible with their career paths? Why would they put their families in dangerous situations? What, what could possibly cause that? And the answer is, well, we're not afraid of death anymore. We've been defeated. We believe in Christ's resurrection. We believe in our resurrection. Philippians 3 says, just like Christ was raised, so will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15 is this chapter that says Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first crop that grows in the field. All of us, God's people, are the rest of the crops that will one day raise from the dead. And with that knowledge, when we come and worship the resurrected Christ, I think it should and can be said of us that Easter, Easter made rebels out of them. It transformed them. Something happened when they saw Christ raise that like set them loose set them on fire and they started just transforming the world for Christ there's nowhere they could be stopped there's nothing that could, could make them afraid so as we go through this Easter season let me invite you to continue thinking through the implications of the resurrection and continue to um, become people uh, who we might call Easter rebels let's pray together Father, we thank you for your, your love. We thank you for um, your raising of the Son from the grave, from the sending of the Spirit to be our allies. In this conflict that we find ourselves in, I pray that you would reveal to us places where death is perhaps enslaving us or controlling us. Maybe places where the fear of death, unknowns to us, is, uh, is manipulating and moving us into a place of disobedience. Um, I pray that you.